All right, let me ask a question. Should be pretty simple, not complex. Let, let me ask a question. I want you to answer, which is better, simple or non-simple? Which is better, simple or non-simple? Yeah, I, uh, we, we, uh, we, may, we may like complexity when it comes to uh, making ourselves feel like we know a lot of stuff, but when it comes to everyday life, we want things simple. Um, and, and really, uh, I was always taught, and I believe it to be true, it's, it's an adage, but, but I think it's true, um, the smartest people are the ones who make even the most complex things simple. Uh, I, I think of a guy like Albert Einstein. He believed, and one of the quotes that is ascribed to him is that everything should be made simpler. And I guess he did it. Uh, it seems pretty simple. You look at his big equation, E equals MC. I don't know what that means, but it sounds real simple. E equals MC squared. We, we need simplicity in our life. We need simplicity because simplicity gives us clarity. And when we have clarity, then it makes uh, making decisions easier. It gives us um, insight into how we should live. And in fact, I would suggest that in order for us to experience the best in life, we need to simplify. Today, we're going to try to simplify. We're going to try to simplify the equation of life. Now, if the equation of life, if, if what we're trying to get to, if if what's on the uh, right-hand side of the equal sign, if what we're trying to get to is the best in life, if that's what we're looking for, then we need to understand what are the ingredients that move us closer to the best in life. I think what happens is uh, we, uh, we start adding all of these different ingredients to what equals the best in life, and it gets kind of confusing. Um, is it, uh, is it uh, things that I own? Will that lead me to a best in life? Now, uh, again, we're in church, and so most of us say, no, it's not what I own that'll get me to the best in life. And yet we fight and struggle and save and pinch pennies so that we can get uh, a mountain home or so that we can get a bass boat or a, uh, a skiff or, or a, new pair, a, new set of golf, new pair, a new set of golf clubs or... Uh, a new home or a different home. We, 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 we work all and give all of our energy to, to getting certain things, but we would say here in church, no, it's not what I, that's not what I get that's going to make me happier, and yet we expend so much energy getting stuff. I don't know why, because it's not going to make us any happier, but, but I think at core we kind of believe it does. You know, I, I think at core we kind of think, well, if I, if I had that, yeah, I'd it'd be a little bit better. Yeah. Maybe it's, not, maybe it's not stuff that we get. Maybe it's relationships. And if everybody would just behave the way that I want them to behave, then life would be better. Have you ever felt that way? I know we're in church, and you're not going to admit it out 
right, but, but I think we do because we live with such vexation over how people behave. Well, they're not behaving right. They're, they're not. My soul, of course they're not behaving right. They're, they're not behaving to meet my expectations. If they would just meet my expectations, then everything would be okay. Again, we won't say that out loud on a Sunday morning because we're, we're in church. But we live with such frustration and vexation over how people behave that maybe, just maybe, that it really is part of our equation. Other circumstances in our life, if, 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 if other circumstances would just get better. If you look at Facebook, and I know that most of you don't because, again, we're in church and we're not going to acknowledge that we look at Facebook. But if, if you look at Facebook, you would think that some great crimes happened because snow fell. I can't believe this snow. Again, it was, it was frustrating after day one or day two. I mean, it depends on how well you deal with cabin fever. But, but, but I mean, it, acted, it was like God had... Had, had somehow intentionally made things better. Or, or, or have, have you seen the Facebook post where they start yelling at the city for not cleaning up the roads? Really? Now, is that going to change anything? Is that going to make anything better? Does it really, does it, does it make you feel better? I don't think so. Oh, maybe it does. Maybe you're the sort that yelling to an anonymous group of people on social media somehow makes you feel better. I may have to, I mean, really? Uh, but I think what we, what we like to do is to say, if, if, if my circumstances would turn out the way I want them, and if I could somehow tame the wind and control the whirlwind, then my life would be better. But you add all those things up, and, and, and then other aspects of complexity begin to add into your life, and, and pretty soon you have this enormous equation that, that you believe is going to lead you to the best life, but it, it can't. There are too many variables. So today what we're going to do is we're going to see how Scripture defines the best life. How do we get hold of the best life every day of our life? How do we simplify Well, in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and we're going we're gonna to skip through this passage. We're going to look at one piece and then up here and then another piece down here. But it's all going to center around James chapter 4, verse 6. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Simplify. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Hey, you remember last week we looked at Galatians chapter 6, and, and that was really a simple statement. You, you reap what you sow. And just a simple statement, but, but it does change the way we look at our thoughts and our words and our attitudes and our actions. What seeds did you sow this week? Did you sow seeds to the flesh? Or did you sow seeds to the Spirit? You know, that, that's, that was simple. And today... Is simple. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. See, what James 4 teaches us, this big idea, is that humility is the mother of simplicity. Humility is the mother of simplicity. But the question is, what does it mean to be humble? 
I have a great video that I want you to look at, and, and maybe it'll help us understand a little bit more about what it means to be humble. What does it mean to be humble? It basically means that, well, that leads to humbleability, because when you're humble, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily, when you're humble, it helps to be like, I've heard of it before, but I'm not exactly sure what it means because I learned what it was in Sunday school one time, a long time ago, but I don't remember what it means now. Well, I, I, I think that even, even though those were just children trying to define what it means to be humble, I think many of us would have a hard time trying to define it. I, I, I think that we understand the concept in, in theory, but we don't like the theory to be put into practice. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, what does it mean to be humble? Humility is simply, now here's simple definitions, humility is simply to put others above yourself. That's humility. Humility is to be more concerned for others than you are concerned for yourself. Now, as followers of Christ, humility carries on a bigger and more significant meaning. To be humble means that, that God takes center stage of our life. We, we are placing God first in our life. That's humility. Humility is God having first place in our life. And others having second place in our life. And us somewhere down the line. That's humility. I know, I know it doesn't sound really nice. I know it doesn't. But this is the equation that leads to the very best in life. How do we know it leads to the very best in life? Well, because what, what uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 says, God gives grace to the humble. It also says he resists the proud. It's what 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6 say, that God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. That's what James chapter 4, verse 6 says, that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. See, to give grace to the humble, that is the very picture of what, what life should be like. It's where we're wrapped in the very grace of God. So friends, please understand, as you live your life every day, the equation that leads to the best in life is, it doesn't need to be muddied up with all the different complexities. Let's keep it simple. God first, others second, and me somewhere down the line. Now, you might protest a little bit and say, well, that's, a little, that's a little bit um, outrageous to think that I'm not supposed to look out for number one. Well, you are supposed to look out for number one. It's just you're not number one. <laughs> I 
Well, I, we, we need to hear this because we get confused, even as followers of Christ. We believe that it is our right to have it my way. Really? Well, who said that? I know Burger King did, but who else? That's generational. There's a whole group of people who have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Burger King said that? Really? Really? Have it your way. Have it your way. Have it your way at Burger King. Anyway, it's a commercial in my younger days. But who, who, says, who says that you have the right? Now I'm talking as followers of Christ. Who, who says that, that you have the right to have things your way? Or that I had the right to have things my way. Again, what, what happens to us is we start confusing our desires for Scripture. We start saying, well, it, it, it's my desire, therefore it must be what God's Word says. Well, no, let's look and see what God's Word says, and then let's adjust our desires to fit what God's Word says. That's a novel concept. Not really. That's the way we're supposed to live. But when we look at humility, here's, here's how we know what humility looks like. Now, we're going to get to James 4 in a second, but here, here's the model of humility. Jesus Christ. Right? Now, we call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that, that humility is a necessary ingredient for us to live worthy of this calling to be a follower of Christ. In other words, if I'm going to fulfill my call as a follower of Christ, I must have humility. Well, what does this humility look like? Again, it's the person of Jesus Christ. The classic passage that teaches us about humility and how we're supposed to live our lives is Philippians chapter 2. In fact, in verses 1 through 4, Paul defines humility in relationship to one another, especially verses 3 and 4 where he says, uh, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, that's humility, in lowliness of mind, let each one esteem others more significant than himself. That's humility. And then verse 5 he says, this is the very attitude of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation and became a man, flesh and bone. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross." Jesus, Jesus models what humility is about. He became obedient to the point of death. Obedient to whom? Obedient to God, God first. But why would God want Jesus to be obedient to the point of death? Others second, to deliver salvation to sinners like you and me. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. This is a simple way to do life. God first. I'm going to be obedient even to the point of death because I'm a follower of Christ. I'm going to be obedient to God. God first. Others second. I'm not going to let anything be done through my own selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, I'm going to, 
I'm going to look out for the interests of others before I look out for the interest of myself. I'm going to look out for number one and number two, but I'm neither one nor two. God first, others second, me somewhere down the line. Humility is the mother of simplicity. Why? Because when we humble ourselves before the Lord, and when we live in humility with one another, we dismantle the drama in our relationships. Now, this is where James chapter 4 picks up. Now, James, he, he is speaking to the church. He's speaking to followers of Christ, like you and me. He's writing this letter to a bunch of believers that would gather together like we're gathered today. And I want you to look at what he wrote in verse 1. In, in James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? What's he talking about? He's talking about the, dra the drama that takes place in relationships. Now, why do wars and fights spring up among us? Whether it's in our home or here at church or even at work, what happens there? Well, James says it's an issue of pleasures or desires. It's where you want what you want, and he wants what he wants. And you're not going to let go of what you want for what he wants, and he's not going to let go of what he wants for what you want. Does that sound familiar? Maybe it doesn't. Let me paint a different picture. Do you remember riding in a car on a car trip with your brothers and sisters in the second seat, your mom and dad in the front seat, and y'all were stuck there for like 10 hours? And you would get tired. Now, even though in my childhood it was before the days of seat belts, it was also before the days of, of video machines in the car and, and before the day of anything other than AM, FM radio. We didn't have iPods or pads or MP3 players. We were stuck. Have, have you ever seen what happens to a family? Especially if you had more than... More than two, maybe three. What if you had four children in that back seat? Can, can you imagine the drama that would begin? D Dad, tell, tell Brett to stop touching me. Now, how in the world is he going to stop touching me? We're four people packed in a little bucket seat back there. Dad, tell, tell Eric to give me more room. It would always impress me because we would try to lay down. <laughs> and we would fight and we would scrape and we would scratch for any inch of vinyl seat we could get. And that's the way many of us do life and relationships. That's how James is describing it. It's where we're fighting for our inches of real estate for ourselves, for our own pleasures, our own desires, our own preferences. And we're fighting and struggling and clawing for what we want. And drama breaks out. A good test to see if you're caught up in the drama is down in verses 11 and 12. You see, a fighting spirit leads to fighting words. 
Verse 11 and 12, James writes, Don't speak evil of one another. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge, what's the law there? The law is the royal law of love, which he mentioned earlier in his letter. The royal law of love is to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the picture of, of, of us allowing our fighting spirit. We want things for us. We want things for ourselves. We want our inch of vinyl seat, and, and we're trying to push our, our brother, our sister, our husband, our wife, our, 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 our neighbor. We're trying to push them out of the way to get more for ourselves. And that fighting spirit leads to fighting words. A good test to see if we are messed up on our equation is by how we talk about others, either to their face or behind their back. See, to speak evil of another, that evil speaking is a general term in the Greek language. It it, it is a general term for talking bad about another person, being ugly about another person. Even if it's true, your intention is to push them further away so that you get more for yourself. Your intention is to hurt them. If you're talking ugly about another person, understand that is a product of pride. Not truth, pride. And it's a fighting spirit that has given you those fighting words. And, of course, we know that that is sin, right? God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. See, anytime we talk ugly about another person, we are committing sin against holy God. Do you realize that? I mean, I know, I know we live in a day and age when we can get away with it more often, maybe. But it doesn't make it right. See, when, if we want to dismantle the drama in our life, then, then we need to start looking out not for our interests, but also for the interests of others. We need to have a ready heart and a ready hand, ready to give up inches of our own vinyl for the blessing and the benefit of others. Can you imagine what kind of ease would happen in, in, in the drama of, of four teenage boys going 16 hours from Dallas, Texas to Knoxville, Tennessee in a station wagon where they're packed together and they don't even stop at a, at, at a rest area for breaks, but, but they're just stuck back there and it's terrible and it's, it's damaging to my psyche and I'm still struggling over it. But do you know how to dismantle the drama in that, in that setting? Hey, Brandon, why don't you put your head on my shoulder and take a nap? Now, he wouldn't do it because he wouldn't trust me. He'd think, yeah, he's going to get me later. He's going to draw on my face, do something. But what about in your marriage? You know, what would happen in your marriage if you stopped looking out for yourself and spent your energy looking out for your spouse? Simplify. Dismantle the drama, God first, others second. Yeah, you, you be diligent, persevere for number one and number two. But you're neither number one nor number two. 
God first, others second. As pastor of the church, please understand, I mean it when I say this is a wonderful community of faith. This is a wonderful church, a loving people. But as family, we get crossways. As family, we have individuals fighting for their rights, wanting their way. And others in the family fighting against them because they want their way. And we fail to understand and simplify the equation that leads to the best life in our homes, in our church, is God first, others second, and us somewhere down the line. That means we need to change to dismantle the drama. We, we not only dismantle the drama, but, but we need to let go control. And, and this is another aspect of life, and one of which I'm very familiar. I, I like to be in control. It, it's an illusion, I understand. I, I'm the father of four daughters, like I'm ever in control anymore. I, 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 I want to be. Now, th- this is what happens in, in verses 2 and 3 of James 4. You look at verse 2. James continues the thought. Now, verse 1 is wars and fights among you. Verse 2, you lust and you do not have. You, you murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What's he talking about there? He's saying, well, you want to have control so much that you're, you're beating and maiming and murdering. You're people crushing uh, so that you can get your way. You want to be in control. You're trying to control the situation. You're trying to control circumstances. You're trying to control people. Have you ever been around individuals that try to control you? Does that make you feel all warm and fuzzy? I'm serious, does it? I'm asking this little informal uh, uh, psychology for myself because it bugs me when people try to control me. I mean, it, it, it creates in me unhealthy things. It does. But, but what if you're on the other end of that? What if you're trying to control someone else? You see, Sometimes in the equation of our life, where, where we think we're going to get the best in life, it's, it's where we're in control. Where we're roping the wind and taming the whirlwind and, and lassoing it down and saying, you belong to me, as if we had control over the snowstorm. As if we could dictate, even to God himself. And, and that's, that's part of the problem. See, when we're in control, we have... We have pushed God out of the equation of our life. There is no such thing as God is my co-pilot. That does not exist. You see, God is either pilot or he's nothing. You see? God doesn't take second chair. He's not looking to me for advice on how he should direct my life. 
I think that what James is saying in verses 2 and 3 is, you know, you, you're, you're pushing and pummeling people because you want control. More than that, verse 3 says you ask amiss. When you do ask, you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasure. He's saying hey, even when you bring God back into the equation, you're trying to control God. You, you're trying to tell God how he should act. You're making God into your step-and-fetch-it boy. And then you get mad at God when he doesn't behave the way you told him to. And yet, so many of us try to control people, try to control the weather, try to control God, try to control the circumstances around us. But remember verse 6, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, therefore, submit to God. See, we let go control. That means that we give God control. We submit to him. God first. We say, God, you're in control. I'm not. God, you're in control of the sun rising and the sun setting. I set my clock by what you have designed. I am no longer asking you to set your clock by what I'm designing. God, I submit to you. You're in control. I leave my life and all the circumstances and all the stuff in your hands. Submit to God. By the way, this is a command. It's not a request. Submit to God. That is the mandate on us, but it also simplifies life. If you live your life trusting holy God to lead you to the best in life, to wrap you up in his grace and every day take care of you, then you're no longer trying to fight and claw for what you want. You're trusting God to give you. I look to the hills, the psalmist said. Whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. When we can live our lives every day trusting in God, submitting every aspect, our calendar, our finances, our relationships, our marriage, our own emotional needs, when we trust God with that as a follower of Christ, then, then we begin to taste a life wrapped up in the grace of God. Submit to God. We need to let go control. And so the challenge for us is to begin the journey towards simplicity today. How do we begin this journey? Well, again, we have commands. It begins with submit to God. But then the, uh, James goes on in verse 7. He says, submit to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So in verses 7 through 9, James gives us insight into how we can let go control, how we can, we can embrace the, the right equation that leads to the best life. God first, others second, uh, somewhere down the line. Now, what does that journey look like? Well, it begins as we give God control. I submit to you. You're in charge. I'm not. 
And then, secondly, we resist the devil. You see, the devil even now begins to, 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 to play in our heads and in our hearts and, 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 and tries to convince us that there are loopholes in this equation. No, I can be in charge of this area. Or, no, I can fight for my right in this area. I don't have to be humble here. And the devil will begin to try to convince us that we can, we can hold on to pride in certain areas of our life because it is our right or it's the way it's done in business or if I don't do it, then I'll be stepped on and have all these different reasonings for it. Well, friends, I've got to tell you, anytime, anytime, our emotions or the advice of others leads us to a path that's contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. It is of the devil. The Bible says God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. So we need, to, we need to name these feelings, these thoughts, this counsel. We need to name it as it is. It is of the devil. And resist that, and, and, and the devil's going to go running. But not only do we resist the devil, but third, we need to draw near to God. We need to get close to God. Jesus Christ is our advocate that brings us into the very presence of God. So when we take Jesus by the hand every morning throughout the day and say, Oh, Jesus, take me to the Father. God becomes the very passion of our lives. And see, here's the thing. I think some of us are more intent on getting close to what we want, but not so intent on getting close to God. See, if we're, if we're going to have the best in life, our passion has to be not what we want, but what God, who God is. We, we need to want Him. We, we need to need him. God first. Others second. Me somewhere down the line. The good promise in this passage is if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. And can I say you being here is a good, good part of drawing near to God and, and, and opening God's word and studying God's word and prayer as we begin a series on prayer next week, praying. That, that, that's, that's awesome avenues to drawing near to God, but, but there is always an obstacle for us drawing near to God, and that is our sin. So we submit to God, we resist the devil, we draw near to God, but what else do we need to do? We need to deal with our sin. If we're going to find simplicity, if we're going to embrace humility, if we're going to taste life as God designed it, we need to deal with our sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That double-minded means that we're trying to, we're trying to uh, have a dual allegiance to ourselves and to God. To the world and to God. We're trying to, trying to live this double life. If you look in verses 4 and 5 of James chapter 4, he, he doesn't call it double-minded there. He calls it adulterers and adulteresses. A little harsher. He says we're trying to be friends of the world. But double-minded is a cleaner way to say it. It's easier and maybe a little bit easier for us to take. But, but all of us struggle with this double-mindedness. Because there is within us this deep desire to, to take charge, to to get stuff for us, to put me as number one. Well, we need to confess that as sin. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Then he adds this, lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, here's the deal. We need to have a brokenness over our sin. See, we, we need to stop winking at sin, our sin. Not hey, What we do, now, can I just talk, and, and I know time is running, but can, can I just talk a little bit to us as family? We love, we love to yell at, at the world about their sinfulness. And, and we're quick to point our fingers at others, even in this room, how they should, they, they, they should adjust to fit what God wants, how they're sinning. Oh, but... But friends, the equation is not us pinpointing other people's sin. The equation is us pinpointing our sin and being broken over it. See, there, there needs to be a brokenness among us. I, I've got to tell you, God has a plan for this church. He really does, and his purpose is so big and so magnificent. But it, it, it's not going to happen as long as we refuse to be broken over our sin. If we're going to take this journey to simplicity and humility and taste the life as God designs it, we need to be broken over our sin. You need to be broken over your sin. And I need to be broken over my sin. And God in His great grace is perhaps even Stirring your heart this morning toward brokenness. When we take this journey toward simplicity, then we begin to understand the rewards for a simple life. These rewards are described in verse 6 and in verse 10. Verse 6, God resists the proud, but reward, he gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. See, the equation that we're looking at is not really, I, I've been saying it wrong. See, it's not God first, others second, and us somewhere down the line. That's really not the equation. See, here's the equation. God first, others second, and us in the care of the living God. See, see that. That's what changes things. It's where we are under his care, where he takes ownership of our lives and says, hey, I'm going to take care of you, and I will give you wisdom. I will give you honor. I will give you, according to Proverbs, I will give you uh, uh, honor, riches, and life itself if you will humble yourself before me. See, we, we need, we desperately need to humble ourselves before God so that we might taste life wrapped in His favor. So today I invite you to simplify. God first, others second, and you in the care of the living God.